Hello there and welcome back to episode 9 of the DC Wash-Up podcast. Spring has sprung, but we're no longer or any clearer about who the eventual nominees may well be. Uh, I'm joined, as always, by Bureau Chief Zoe Daniel. Hello. It's actually kind of nice. You've been in the office for a little while. Have oh. you gone back and done the math about how many days you've... You've been in the office compared to on the road in the last few months? Uh, it would be more out than in. <laughs> well, we're glad to have you here. And we do not have our other regular correspondents, Michael Vincent and Stephanie March, who are taking some much-deserved time off. But we do have a reinforcement that we've called in from Australia, and that is Nicholas Harmson. G'day, Roscoe. Nice to be here. Spring has sprung in Washington. It's beautiful. Yes, you brought the good weather. So, Nick, this isn't your first time in Washington, D.C. You spent some time uh, with us last year. Can you talk a little bit about what the political climate was like then? And now you're coming back. Um, how surprised you are it's turned out the way it is. Yeah, I guess when I first came here, it was during the season of, uh, of all of them uh, announcing their nominations that they were going to run. We had Chris Christie standing up. Donald Trump was, of course, already in the race. But back then, there was about 16 or 17 uh, candidates on the Republican side. Um, so it was all... It was all a bit amusing. I think most uh, most of the news networks here uh, found it all amusing and bemusing, and I guess no one really expected that we'd end up, uh, certainly on the Republican side, with the, the three candidates uh, that we had. I think a lot of people, uh, you know, even as an outsider, you kind of looked at Marco Rubio and thought, look, he's saying the sorts of things that you would anticipate uh, a Republican presidential uh, nominee to say, you know, once this is all sorted out, he's going to be standing there. And so it's with some surprise that you look at the board and you see Ted Cruz, Donald Trump and, and John Kasich. Yeah, I think any betting man that had put money on that trifecta would be a very rich man now. So we've had a few more primaries and caucuses as we always do. Um, just quickly looking back at the numbers from Tuesday night, Hillary Clinton is still in the lead. She's got 1,223 delegates to Bernie Sanders, 920. Now, Bernie Sanders actually won two out of the three uh, caucuses and primaries on uh, Tuesday night. They were both caucuses that he won, and Hillary won in Arizona. Let's have a talk about the significance of that. Zoe, what did you think coming out of Tuesday night? I don't think it really changed anything, basically. Uh, Yes, Bernie won two. Hillary won the bigger one, though. So although he came out with a, a handful of extra delegates, she's still way in front, and it's a, a sort of status quo uh, position. It still looks very difficult for Bernie Sanders to uh, beat Hillary from here, if not impossible. Uh, that said, I think even her campaign staff have said this week that they quite like having him in the race because it provokes a conversation and debate. And certainly that's the role that he's played throughout the campaign is the sort of thorn in the side of Hillary, uh, keeping her honest, raising questions uh, and pushing the debate forward, which he continues to do. But he's starting to look a little bit tired. Um, and I, I don't necessarily mean in, in the physical sense, although he probably is really tired, <laughs> uh, but early on in the campaign there was that sense of energy and momentum um, among the, the Sanders supporters and the Sanders camp, and I'm not seeing that now. Is there an element too where, you know, he, because he appeals to that, uh, that base in the Democratic Party a bit like Trump does on the Republican side, the people who are disaffected with politics, that him staying in keeps those people interested and engaged in the process long enough that they can perhaps swing over to Hillary at some point down the track? Well, there's that. Um, I mean, I think early on uh, the 
the pattern suited him in that he was able to do well in a few uh, turning point moments early on, which gave some momentum. Um, but if you look at the number of people voting, the Democrat numbers are far lower than the Republican voters, even in states where the Democrats have more signed up members. And I think that's becoming a reflection of the fact that the race uh, is a lot more clear cut on the Democrat side. People don't see the need to go out and vote in the primaries because it looks like Hillary will win the nomination. And that that's a totally different uh, kettle of fish to the actual presidential campaign and the eventual vote for the presidency, which will flush out a totally different group of voters. Yes, I think it's said that uh, Bernie Sanders is, you know, strengthening Hillary up to be a stronger candidate for the general election, and that's kind of what they've been hoping for all along from Hillary's camp. On the more interesting Republican side of things, there are only uh, two events on Tuesday night. It was the uh, Republican primary in Arizona, which Donald Trump won uh, handsomely, and then also the Republican caucus in Utah, which Ted Cruz came out on top in. So right now we've got Donald Trump with 738 delegates, Ted Cruz with 463, and uh, John Kasich, 143, still behind Marco Rubio, who is out of the race. That's right, yeah, he finished, finished behind the ghost of Marco Rubio in Arizona, <laughs> I think it was. I think that, it was. That's not going to stop him, though. Nick, what were your thoughts about those results? Oh, well, interesting. I think Ted Cruz, you know, really needed to, to win Utah to you know, keep some sort of semblance of, of, of numbers behind uh, Trump and to, to keep those delegates away from, uh, from Trump as well. So he took, I think, all 40 delegates in that state. Um, so fascinating. I mean, you know, I think the appeal to the, you know, the very conservative uh, Mormon elements in Utah played a role. And I think we, we might have a chat about that later with some of the, uh, the fun and games that's gone on between Donald Trump and Ted Cruz and their wives, but also, you know, the interesting thing there is is also Kasich. He's despite the Marco Rubios getting out of the race, he's not polling well at all, and he's really staying in, in there in the in the hope of a brokered convention. But how you can expect to be the nominee with such a small proportion of the votes, I, I don't understand that. Yeah, I mean, in a way, for me, this week's similar on the Republican side to the Democrat side. It didn't really take us anywhere. If Ted Cruz had lost Utah, then it would have been interesting. As it unfolded, it was kind of what you'd expect. You, Trump took Arizona very well. Uh, Ted Cruz took Utah, as you would have expected. But the thing that has unfolded kind of more interestingly is this uh, sudden queuing behind Ted Cruz of some of the Republican establishment, <laughs> which, which, as you said, Nick, goes to, well, why aren't they behind Kasich? Because he's the supposed remaining establishment candidate. And, and it's said that it's partly because he just hasn't won enough, so he hasn't earned it. And also, although he's a so-called establishment candidate, he kind of isn't as well. Um, there's not real faith or trust in, in Kasich's ethos necessarily among the Republican establishment. I've found it particularly amusing how little enthusiasm there has been in the endorsements we've seen uh, for Ted Cruz this week. You know, uh, I think uh, Jeb Bush put out a statement and that was the, the extent of it. We didn't see a Chris Christie-like standing behind uh, Donald Trump and in, endorsing him. Uh, Lindsey Graham uh, from oh, South Carolina, he, he was on TV last night saying, look, I think he was my 15th or 16th choice. And <laughs> you know, he basically said, I think before, if, if you shot Ted Cruz on the floor of the Senate... And then you held, the held a trial, trial in the Senate, no. he wouldn't be convicted. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, I think you know, there is very little enthusiasm from 
uh, the other candidates and from the establishment for Ted Cruz, but I think they see him as the only option now. Oh, and, and better the devil you know is a quote that is being sort of run out um, at various quarters. Although I think that might be a little bit naive because I'm not necessarily sure that people do really know what Ted Cruz would do if he was the president. Um, and he might be more difficult to control in some ways than Donald Trump. And I think that's what the Republican establishment is grappling with, the fact that they've got two people that they don't really want and they're trying to work out which one um, they can back to to control and keep on a leash. And, you know, in some ways, Donald Trump uh, sort of counterintuitively <laughs> might be easier than Ted Cruz. Ronald Reagan style, surround him with smart, good operators. Well, he, he's a businessman. He'll delegate uh, he'll choose people who are smart, who know their stuff, and he'll use them to inform his decision-making. Ted Cruz has proved already uh, that he is his own man with a very strong will uh, and that he won't use the Republican establishment uh, to inform his decision-making. Quite the reverse. Uh, and they might find that very difficult if he was uh, in the White House. I think if you look back at my projections... Oh, and there it is, Donald, telling us to move on. They turned out to be very, very... What was the word he used this week that he made up this week? Prognostications. Prognostications. My projections and my prognostications. He used it a couple of times in different contexts. Fantastic. And joining us today, we have a very special guest. It's Brooks Simpson, who is a presidential historian at the Arizona State University, who's going to try to explain to us a very confusing thing called brokered conventions. How are you, Brooks? Just fine. How are you? Very good. Now, Brooks, start us off. As quickly and easily as possible, what is a brokered convention? A brokered convention is when no candidate has a majority of the delegates sufficient to secure the party's nomination on the first ballot as the delegates gather at the convention site to choose a presidential candidate. Right. And why this year are we hearing this term thrown around uh, more than usual? Well, it does seem that the Republican contest in particular uh, may not yield a majority choice candidate by the time of the convention. The other reason we hear this uh, term now used much more frequently is because many Republicans are not happy with either of the two uh, front runners, Donald Trump, who's received a lot of publicity, or uh, Texas Senator Ted Cruz. Brooks, I think I know the answer to this, but for the sake of our audience, can you explain the difference between the terms contested convention and brokered convention? Well, it, 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 it's interesting because I'm not sure there is a lot of meaningful difference in terms of how these things play out. A contested convention, after all, is when you have uh, more than one candidate eligible to uh, secure the nomination and no outright choice having been made through the primary and caucus process. Brokered always makes it sound like that there are still people in what Americans used to call smoke-filled rooms who are making the choices behind the scenes. Um, so contested gives the image that perhaps the delegates on the floor will make these choices, which I think is charming but naive. Broker gives the image that there are party bosses behind the scenes who will make these choices, which has some validity to it, but Americans have not done this in so long that they don't know how to go about it. 
Brooks, how does it work if let's assume that nobody gets to the magic number and that Donald Trump falls short and they all turn up at the convention? What happens? How, how does the vote on the floor work? Well, first of all, the um, delegates are only committed to vote for their candidate um, on um, the, the balloting for the presidential nomination. So delegates could vote different ways on rules challenges, their process, and that may have an impact on exactly who is chosen because the rules sometimes determine the outcome of the game. A different state have different rules for when delegates can abandon the choice of candidate to whom they were committed and go off on their own. So that's a state-by-state decision, which only adds, I think, to the confusion of when a delegate might abandon their first choice and embrace a compromise or second choice. And Brooks, what's the historical precedent for something like this? Where, Where can we go back in the history books and see what we might expect to see this year? Well, we, we can go back in the history books. Of, uh, first of all, we can't go back in at least my lifetime uh, to, to see something like this. The closest we've come to this was in 1976 with the Republicans. Uh, the incumbent, President Gerald Ford, had not secured a majority of the delegates coming into the convention. Um, but before the first ballot was cast, uh, the Mississippi delegation uh, decided to support the president, and that defeated the uh, presidential candidacy of Ronald Reagan for that year. Of course, Reagan would win four years later. The last time that it took multiple ballots for a uh, president to be chosen for the Democrats was back in 1952 when Adelaide Stevenson, who was not a candidate prior to the convention, was drafted over uh, some of the people who had already put themselves up as candidates. For the Republicans, it was 1948 when uh, New York Governor Thomas E. Dewey won the nomination on the third ballot in, in a rather contested uh, uh, process where uh, other Republicans were dead set against Dewey's nomination. Brooks, can you take us through that a little more? If there's no consensus on the first ballot and we end up in this position where uh, the various delegates are freed, if you like, to vote for an alternative candidate, can we then end up in a situation where uh, someone like John Kasich, uh, for example, who's way behind the front runners at the moment, or indeed someone totally different like a, a Mitt Romney or, or a Paul Ryan or, uh, you know, various random people who've been thrown forward could suddenly swing in and become the nominee, having not even been part of the race. Absolutely. That could happen very easily. And there have been times where candidates who have not submitted themselves to the primary process have indeed been chosen. Uh, even in 1968, Hubert Humphrey, who was Lyndon Johnson's vice president, won the Democratic nomination that year in a rather controversial convention in Chicago, uh, and he won it, although he had not run in a single primary. He had worked the caucus system, but he had never subjected himself to the verdict of a a popular election prior to his nomination. What can we see? Um, We we can see total chaos, especially now, (laughs) the the end of the brokered or convention, uh, contested convention, actually coincided with the rise of television. And so what we would see watching uh, would be total chaos because parties like to make those decisions in private in the past without the kind of press scrutiny uh, that they would be subjected to today. 
So I think where people who um, are really enamored with presidential politics, I want to talk about the old days. Some of the old days were pretty grim. It took the Democrats 103 ballots in 1924 to select their presidential nominee. And aside from the prospect of uh, a fairly serious public reaction to that, I think you might see mutiny by thousands of exhausted (laughs) journalists who've been running around to all of these caucuses and primaries only to come to a point where the person who's nominated wasn't even a candidate. Uh, Absolutely. And I I do think that uh, if the Republicans do not nominate Trump, uh, that uh, for all the Trump's bluster about violence as a result, uh, there will be some deeply dissatisfied and embittered Trump supporters who will believe that the denial of the nomination of their candidate is yet more evidence of the establishment forces that are in control of the Republican Party and against whom Donald Trump has been running for this past year. Has, is there a precedent for that at all, Brooks? Has there been a case where uh, you know, part, parties might have threatened to split as a result of uh, a brokered convention? Uh, there have been there have been um, examples in where parties portions of parties unhappy with the party's nominee have split away. Um, most recently and seriously of what have been 1948 when Harry Truman was nominated in his own right as president, a group of Southern Democrats known as the Dixiecrats broke away and nominated as their candidate Senator Strom Thurmond. Uh, there have been other. Uh, uh, Conventions where this has happened as well, but this is usually in the 19th century. The most famous might be in 1860, when the Democratic Party split apart, and in the ensuing election, uh, Abraham Lincoln secured his claim with the presidency, and Lincoln himself was only a third ballot nominee. Well, thank you very much, Brooks. I'm glad someone knows what's going on. We'll probably have to call you up again as we get closer to the conventions where this seems all too likely. Thanks for your time, Brooks, and we'll talk soon. You're welcome. And one other very pointy issue that's kind of come forward in the past couple of days is some gutter politics, would you say? Bringing the wives into the equation. We've had a spat via social media between Ted Cruz and Donald Trump. Nick, can you explain to us what on earth is going on here? Well, it's fascinating. You just can't picture it happening in Australian politics, can you? But I hope not. <laughs> look, this does feed into the primaries in Utah. We saw a super PAC group aligned to Ted Cruz uh, running a, an ad, an anti-Trump ad, which included a, a naked picture taken of Donald Trump's wife. And he, uh, Donald Trump hit out at that on Twitter and basically said, uh, you know, warned Ted Cruz that if uh, he, he was going to bring his wife into it, then he'd have some things to say about Ted Cruz's wife. Spilled the beans, I think. Spilled yeah. the beans on Ted Cruz's wife. Ted, Cruz's, uh, Ted Cruz said, look, I had nothing to do with the ad, and if you're going after my w- wife, you're more of a coward than I thought you were. And then, of course, uh, Donald Trump has now responded on Twitter and, uh, and put up a photo of his wife and uh, of Ted Cruz's wife, sort of suggesting that he has the much better-looking wife. It's really remarkable. Zoe, is this where American politics has got to now? Uh, It looks like (laughs) it from this week. Um, Look, Melania, Donald Trump's wife, is a former model, and the picture was from GQ magazine. So So it's it's not like it was some sort of random (laughs) naked photo. Um, Yeah, got a bit got a bit ugly, didn't it? You don't want to bring people's um, families into the conversation. And Ted Cruz has had things to say previously about his children um, being mentioned. Um, it, 
Donald Trump tweeted and then deleted uh, the tweet uh, on this particular Never issue. Tweet. So let's hope that's the end of it. Yeah. I mean, it, it's fascinating the way that wives and families are being used on the campaign trail. I mean, both have used their wives at different campaign events. And we saw Ted Cruz's wife held a doorstop interview yesterday to come out and respond. Um, uh, and it's it's pretty clear that she's been schooled in, in how to steer the message back onto the campaign. Uh, and, and it is a factor here where the First Lady is, you know, highly prominent within the, the presidency. And... Uh, in fact, uh, Ted Cruz's wife was was sort of a subject of discussion on cable TV around her her first lady credentials and persona. And I've had people raise this with me in the field who've said, "Well, if you're choosing a president, you would choose Ted Cruz because his wife uh, is more um, the first lady persona." She's she's like. an investment banker. She's uh, certainly telegenic and presents presents very. Uh, well on camera, so you'd think that's... Uh, then again, you know, having a, a model who's been in the pages of GQ and the rest, I could see that working in the United States. Well, and obviously the Trump campaign's aware of uh, this in the sense that uh, Donald Trump's wife, Melania, did a couple of interviews, sit-down interviews, you know, detailed interviews uh, with various high-profile presenters a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so they are trying to portray her... Um, as a, a, a first lady candidate. And this may all end up being a moot point if we end up with a first man. <laughs> Indeed. Be familiar with the role. So that is probably about it for today, guys. I think we've covered all bases. Uh, this weekend we've got a few Democratic primaries, I think, uh, in Hawaii, in Alaska couple of nice places, and Washington State as well. So we'll see what unfolds from there. And the next big thing for the Republicans is in Wisconsin, which is now being slated as the big place to stop Trump. So until next week, we'll see you all then.